Then, <clears throat> after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation and set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaim among the Gentiles in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, <clears throat> who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for mine to the Gentiles. And when James and Cephas and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Now here are verses 11 through 14. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles, but when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with him, so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? Let's pray. <clears throat> Father, be good to your people. Build us up in Christ for your name's sake. And we ask it in his name. Amen. Amen. Alright, so we are continuing our journey through the book of Galatians. The last sermon that I preached was in Galatians 1. It was verses 6 through 10. So we are jumping over um, a decent bit. But before you get angry with me, uh, <laughs> I do want to summarize that, that block of Scripture. Now the Apostle Paul uh, gives his account of a 17-year time frame from his conversion all the way to his second visit to Jerusalem. And he does this because his apostleship is being attacked by the Judaizers. If you can undermine Paul being an apostle, then you can undermine the gospel that he's preaching. And Paul explains that he was zealous for the traditions of his fathers, which led to his persecution of the church. He explains, however, that God the Father revealed Christ to him directly, and that his knowledge of the gospel was not derivative but directly from God himself. And so after his conversion in Damascus, Paul goes to Arabia, then he returns to Damascus, and then after three years, he makes his initial visit to Jerusalem as a believer, as a Christ follower. 
Now in his first visit, he only sees Peter and James, the brother of Christ. And after this, he spends 14 years preaching the gospel gospel to the Gentiles before the Lord tells him to return to Jerusalem. And it is at this visit that the gospel Paul is preaching is confirmed by the leaders in Jerusalem, including Peter, James, and John. And so they acknowledge his apostleship to the Gentiles. Now understand that when Paul makes these statements, he subjects himself to scrutiny. The churches there in Galatia can send a delegate with a letter to Jerusalem and have these things confirmed or denied. And so Paul does not do this for his own benefit, as he makes clear in chapter 2, verse 6. But he does so for the sake of the saints in Galatia, so that they will listen to him and not the, the Judaizers who are attacking his apostleship and the gospel that he is preaching. And so he's telling them, go ahead and see if what I'm saying is true. If the pillars of the church in Jerusalem, including some of the twelve apostles, confirm what Paul is telling them, then the Judaizers lose their credibility with the Galatian churches. Now, something that Paul mentions in chapter 2, verse 3, that is pertinent to our sermon, is that he had Titus, a Gentile with him in Jerusalem, among the Jewish church leaders, right? So Peter, James, and John. Now Titus is an uncircumcised Gentile, and at no time was he required to get circumcised. And the fact that Peter did not require it is especially important. Now this brings us to our initial verse, verse 11, where Peter has traveled to Antioch, where Paul is already located, And the battle for the integrity of the gospel between Paul and Peter begins. Now verse 14 actually sets the basis for our sermon. Paul tells us that the conduct, speaking of Peter, Barnabas, and the Jewish Christians there in Antioch, is not in step with the gospel. And so what I want us to do is look at what, uh, what did Peter and the others do that wasn't in step with the gospel. Next, we are going to look at why it was contrary to the gospel. And then we're going to look at some implications and applications that can be taken from the text. So what did Peter and the other Jewish Christians do that was so bad, Paul felt the need to confront Peter publicly instead of privately, like it says in Matthew 18, with an erring brother or sister. Well, Peter, Barnabas, and the others had been eating with the Gentiles. Now in verse 12, it says he, speaking of Peter only, but if we look at verse 13, it says the rest of the Jews were led astray and acted hypocritically. And so this tells us that beforehand, all of them were eating with the Gentiles, not just Peter. Now, here's the thing. Peter and the other Jewish Christians eating with the Gentiles is no small thing. Not only are these men breaking Jewish customs, they are demonstrating that the Mosaic Covenant is done away with. The Mosaic Covenant would not allow Jewish men to eat with uncircumcised Gentiles. No uncircumcised male was allowed to be part of the covenant people of God 
under the Old Covenant, whether they were Gentile or Jewish. And so to eat a meal with them is to demonstrate fellowship with them, covenant fellowship. Eating with the uncircumcised Gentiles was a living, practical example of Peter and the Jewish Christians acknowledging the new covenant superseding the old covenant and all that went with it, including circumcision. Now, verse 12 tells us that certain men came from James. Now, because there's no distinction given, this is James, the brother of Jesus, previously mentioned. Okay, it's not one of the James of the 12 apostles. Now, when these men from James came to Antioch, Peter separated himself from the Gentile, from the Gentile Christians out of fear of these men. Now, at the end of verse 12, it calls them the circumcision party. Now, the word party tells us that this was a certain group that was identified by their view that circumcision was necessary for salvation or at least a necessary act of righteousness for a Christian who wanted to live faithfully before the Lord. And it is probably safe to say that along with circumcision came Old Testament dietary laws as well. <clears throat> Now, what makes this odd is that in chapter 2, verse 9, Peter, James, and John all acknowledge that Paul had been given the gospel by God to take to the Gentiles. It wasn't a different gospel for the Gentiles, but the same gospel that had been given to Peter to take to the Jewish people. Now, if we follow Paul's argument in verse 15 and on, we didn't read those, it does not seem that the circumcision party is stating that circumcision is what faithful Christians do after they are saved, but is itself necessary for salvation. And so the question is, if James had previously given Paul the right hand of fellowship in the gospel, why would he send men who teach a false gospel contrary to Paul's afterwards? So I want to quickly clarify this so that there's no confusion or misunderstanding. And I believe that clarification is found in the book of Acts. In Acts 15, verses 22 through 24, we are told that men had gone out from among the apostles and elders in Jerusalem. This would have been including James. And they were teaching things the apostles and the elders themselves did not teach. Verse 24 tells us that these things both confused and disturbed the Gentile believers. And Antioch happened to be one of the cities that this, this clarification was sent to. And so what has probably happened here is not that James is being two-faced towards Paul, but these men from James are teaching what James himself was not. Now, here's the thing. It is very possible that James still practice Old Covenant precepts, such as the dietary laws, which he still had the liberty to do under the New Covenant, yes. as long as he didn't require it for, for salvation, or as a way to please God after salvation. Remember, many of the Jews, including James, who became Christians, folks, they had lived their entire life under the Mosaic Covenant and all of its precepts. And so they, they may have continued to practice many of them out of cultural familiarity. 
Right again, as long as they didn't require others to do the same, they were well within their Christian liberty to keep the dietary laws which they were so accustomed to. All right, and so hopefully that may clear up any possible confusion. So let's continue on. So these men of the circumcision party from James have come to Antioch, and apparently they have quite a bit of influence because they have caused the chief of the apostles, Peter, to submit to their influence. Peter segregates himself from the uncircumcised Gentile believers, and he will only fellowship with the men of the circumcision party. Not only that, Peter being the chief of the apostles causes Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians to follow him in his hypocrisy. And what Peter has done is so grievous. In verse 11, Paul says that Peter stood condemned. He used strong language. Paul publicly confronted, and I am sure embarrassed Peter in front of the saints there in Galatia. Now, here's the thing. What Peter and the others were doing, not saying, but doing, was contrary to the gospel. The question is how? Well, I think it's quite obvious that the circumcision party is teaching a false gospel, which we have previously addressed in, in the previous sermons, making them worthy of being cursed by God, anathema. The thing is, folks, Peter has not adopted this false gospel. He hasn't changed his mind about how any sinner, Jew or Gentile, gets saved. He didn't tell Paul to have Titus circumcised when they were in Jerusalem. And in verse 14, Paul tells us that Peter was living like a Gentile, not a Jew who was still under Old Testament laws. This was a big part of Peter's hypocrisy. Peter is not confused about the gospel. Peter caved to the fear of man and compromise the gospel for the sake of his own comfort. And we're going to talk about this uh, a little bit more later. Now his hypocrisy damaged the faith of the Gentile Christians in Galatia. At the very minimum, what Peter is communicating is that within the body of Christ, there is a legitimate division between saints. Some saints are better than other saints. Some are more favored or more righteous in the sight of God than others. Now we know that this is patently false. In John chapter 10 verse 16, Jesus is speaking to his disciples and the religious leaders and he says, And I have other sheep that are not of this fold. I must bring them also and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock and one shepherd. Now, we need to remember, Jesus went to the house of Israel first to fulfill Old Covenant promises. And so in this verse, the other fold is the Gentiles. But Jesus still says, there is one flock and one shepherd of the sheep. This was always, always God's plan. In Ephesians 1.4, Paul tells the saints in Ephesus, many, if not most of whom are Gentiles, 
that they were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. And so saved Gentiles are not afterthoughts or non-Jewish people who got lucky. They too were the apple of God's eye in eternity past, being chosen in the Son. Now the worst part of this distinction is not that it separates believers, but that it diminishes the person and work of Christ. Jesus imputes his righteousness to the Jewish and Gentile believers alike, which he must do for any sinner to be saved. If you don't have the righteousness of Christ imputed to you, then you are not a Christian and you are not saved. And so if the Gentile Christian wears the righteousness of Christ and the Jewish believers segregate themselves from the Gentiles believing they are inferior in some way, are those of the circumcision party then more righteous than Christ? Wouldn't that be the implication of the Jewish believers separating themselves because they view themselves as more righteous than the Gentile believers? It absolutely would. If being circumcised and following Old Testament dietary laws made you more righteous than the Christians who didn't, are you not adding to, or even worse yet, improving on the righteousness of Christ? And so this segregation by Peter and the other Jewish believers is blasphemous. Now let's say maybe those of the circumcision party said, well, wait a minute, the, the, the Gentile Christians are still saved, but only Jewish believers who were circumcised and followed the dietary laws were actually imputed with the righteousness of Christ. They would still be blaspheming the Lord. Now, how so? It's because they would be minimizing the standard by which the Lord accepts sinners into His holy presence. God would have to minimize His holiness to accept sinners who were less righteous than Christ into fellowship with Him. Folks, anyone who says a person can be accepted by God without the imputed righteousness of Christ blasphemes the holiness of God. And to add anything to the imputed righteousness of Christ to be accepted by God is to blaspheme Christ and His righteousness which the Father said, or the Father declared, was perfect by resurrecting Jesus from the dead. And so if you add any works to the gospel for salvation, you call into question what the resurrection of Christ actually accomplishes. Now Thomas Wilcox in his book, A Choice Drop of Honey from the Rock of Christ, I highly recommend it, says that if you add anything no matter how small to the work of Jesus for the salvation of sinners, you unchrist him. And so there is no way around this to segregate believers and put them into tears that differentiate God's favor or acceptance of them is to blaspheme God and to add any works to the gospel is to do the same. Now folks, listen to me. God help us if we believe that Reformed Christians are more righteous or more favored by God than non-Reformed Christians. 
I am not minimizing what we honestly believe to be damaging doctrinal errors that harm the church and give to man what belongs to God, but non-reformed Christians were the same righteousness that we do. And we have to keep that at the forefront of our minds when we are engaging with our non-reformed brothers and sisters in Christ regarding issues of the faith, which we should do. Now, causing the Gentile Christians to think they were second-class Christians because they weren't circumcised is not the only consequence of Peter's actions. If it didn't cause them to view themselves as lower-tier saints in the eyes of God, then it may very well have caused them to question whether or not they were actually Christians, whether or not they were actually saved. And the fact that Paul so strongly chastises the Galatian churches for adopting a faith plus works salvation tells us this is probably what happened. By joining themselves to those of the circumcision party, especially Peter, right, the chief of the apostles, they are giving credence to the false gospel of the Judaizers. Jesus has said, I bought these Gentiles with my own blood. They are mine. And the Judaizers are telling Jesus, your blood wasn't enough. And that is what Peter's actions are communicating to the Galatian saints. Now, Peter, Barnabas, and the other Jewish believers cannot become anathematized and lose their salvation. But they have put themselves in a position of severe discipline by the Lord. Look at this, folks. They have made themselves enemies of the gospel. Hence the need for Paul to go to battle to defend the true gospel against an apostle of Christ, no less. And this probably explains why Paul does not confront Peter privately first, but publicly instead. It is because of who Peter is and because of the potential damage Peter and the others can cause by giving giving credence to the circumcision party. Now, Scripture itself tells us that sometimes this is necessary. 1 Timothy 5.20 tells us that elders who persist in sin are to be rebuked publicly. Now, this is not necessarily a matter of persistent sin on Peter's part but a very grave sin that needs an equally grave rebuke and correction. And so Paul is fighting for the gospel in his public confrontation with Peter and his cowardly hypocrisy. Remember, folks, this is, at the very first sermon, this is a rescue mission. It has eternal consequences to it. And our enemies are relentless, they are vicious, and they are powerful. And so battle in the Christian life, especially for the gospel, is inevitable. Now there are implications for us in all of this, and implications lead to application. And I want us to look at what those are. Now there are multiple reasons why Paul is doing this. Besides the obvious reason that God has commanded him to, which is good enough on its own. All right, but, but they apply to us as well. 
Now, the first reason he's doing this is out of his love for God. No one who loves the triune God can stand by idle when the gospel is being attacked or threatened. Attacking the gospel is not just attacking a doctrine. Christianity is not abstract academic theology. We are real people in a real covenant with a real and living God who really loves us. So much so that God the Son said for the sake of His sheep, Yes, I will go. Yes, I will humble myself. I will live a life of hardship. Yes, I will allow my life to be constantly threatened. Yes, I will hunger. I will thirst. I will be forsaken by my own. I will become the object of my Father's wrath. I will be spit on. I will be stripped naked. I will be humiliated. I will have the flesh ripped off of my back. I will have the hair ripped off of my, from my beard, ripped off of my face. I will have nails hammered into my hands and feet. I will hang in agony on the cross. Yes, I will die for my people. That's not abstract theology. That's the gospel. <clears throat> so to attack the, the gospel is to attack Jesus himself and everything he did to make us his prized possession. And that's not it. The gospel is the eternal decree of the triune God and the means by which he will accomplish his eternal purpose and will. Remember, 2 Corinthians 1.20 All the promises of God are yes in Jesus. Yahweh wants a holy people that will love him and, and glorify him in a glorified new creation. And he will accomplish that through the fruit of the gospel. Now more could be said, but I don't think there's any need. What I have said ought to be enough. To attack the gospel is to attack everything that Jesus suffered and died for and to attack the very desire and purpose of God. Now, our love for God is imperfect. But if we have any love for God, we will uphold, defend, and fight for the gospel when it is attacked or twisted or manipulated. If we are not willing to do so, then God means little to nothing to us, and I would say it would reveal that we are not truly His people. Now, the next reason Paul does this is out of a love for the church. Folks, the gospel is what creates the church. It sanctifies the church, and it will bring it to its glorified end. The gospel is not just what gets us saved from God's wrath. It is the way we are able to persevere in the faith. The gospel is what tells us that God still loves us no matter what. We can never sin away the love of God if we are truly His. Think about that. The gospel is what enables us to fight with the flesh and the devil when they accuse us of our sin. Another worthy quote from the Rock of Christ by Wilcox. When Satan charges sin upon your conscience, then for the soul to charge it upon Christ is, 
That is the gospel. That is to make him Christ. The gospel is what enables you to tell the world what you say about me doesn't define me. My success doesn't define me. My failure doesn't define me. My house, my car, my academic pedigree, my physical appearance. Christ defines us. Only God can truly tell us who and what we are. And through the gospel, we are in union with Christ. We are in Him. He is in us. And so the Father sees us through the love and perfection of His Son. It is the gospel that frees us from the bondage that the world wants to imprison us in. It is the gospel that gives you victory over death. So even if the world kills us, we will rise from the grave in glorious immortality. So even their attempt to kill us falls short. It is through the gospel that we receive the Holy Spirit and are empowered to live a holy life of true humanity. It's the gospel that enables us to become truly and fully human. Now, I could go on, but again, this is enough. The gospel ought to be incomparably precious to the Christian. And so to attack the gospel is to attack the life, perseverance, hope, joy, and glory of the church, including this one. So if you love the church, if we love each other, We will defend, uphold, and fight for the gospel. Now thirdly, Paul did this out of a love for Peter. If you love someone, you do not keep your mouth shut and sit on the couch when they are doing or about to do something that will bring themselves and others great harm. Peter's hypocrisy was causing great harm to the Galatian saints. And he was putting himself under the divine rod of discipline, which is not where any Christian wants to be. Peter, though he was in great error, was Paul's brother in Christ still. In 1 John 4, 21, it tells us, as a commandment from God, if we love God, we are to love our brother and our sister. Now, Paul may have been very angry with Peter. I'm sure he was. But he loved him still. And so Paul confronted Peter for many reasons, one of them being love for a brother. All right, now there are some other applications that, we need, to be, that need to be addressed as well. <clears throat> what these scriptures tell us is that Christians, even Christian leaders such as pastors, are subject to great error. They can be fickle. They can compromise their duties and their doctrine out of a fear of man. Now that doesn't mean we should expect it or that it will happen. What I'm telling you is that it can happen. Peter forsook Christ and denied that he even knew Jesus three times the night of Jesus' trial before his death. But after the resurrection and ascension of Jesus... 
Peter is in Jerusalem, the very city that Jesus was punished in, with the same people who killed Jesus, publicly proclaiming with boldness the gospel of Jesus Christ. Peter is now willing to suffer greatly for Jesus. And after being told by the Sanhedrin not to speak salvation in Christ anymore, Peter says, I will obey God rather than man. And so he pretty much told the leading religious group who had the power to have him killed, no. But then after 17 years of being an apostle, he cowers to a group of Christians who are not even leaders themselves because of their association with James, who is not even one of the 12 apostles. A leader, yes, an influential leader, but not an apostle like Peter, the chief apostle. These men from James have no power or authority to cause Peter any harm, yet he acts contrary to the gospel because of them. And so what should our response to this be? Well, this is an easy one. Pray for your pastor. Give him the honor that Scripture ascribes to him. But don't forget that he is still a sinner saved by the same grace we were. He is still a man subject to the attacks from the world, the flesh, and the devil, just like we are. We should ask our God and Father to grant him an abundance of grace to carry out the great, formidable task that he has been given. Now, another very important aspect of these scriptures deals with gifted men that we have tried to turn into celebrities. Modern technology has given the church all around the world access to exceptionally gifted men from all over the world. Everyone knows their name. We all want their books. At least I want their books. We want to go to the conferences they are speaking at. And folks, look, that's fine. That's not sinful in and of itself. Unless we start to see them in a higher light than we ought Now, if one of them starts to yield to the culture or fall into sin, we're shocked. Why? If the Apostle Peter himself, after two decades of being a pillar in the church, cowers in fear to a group of men to the point of making himself an enemy of the gospel, an enemy of God, Why would we think it can't happen to our favorite celebrity preacher who is no apostle? Now here is something that I think will help us to avoid this. Whatever gifts this individual has that so endears us to them, know that Jesus also has them and more and to an infinite degree. If you are impressed with and fill in the blank, know that they don't hold a candle to Jesus. Jesus was never fickle. He was never inconsistent. And most importantly, Jesus never 
feared man more than he feared God. And so if, you're, if we are going to be impressed with someone, let us be impressed with the Lord. Now, appreciate and benefit. Yes, appreciate and benefit from the gifted man God has given us, but don't think more highly of them or expect more from them than you ought. Now, another application from this great text. Being a faithful Christian does not mean you always have to be nice. Contrary to what countless compromising evangelical leaders and slithering split-tongued news anchors say, I don't apologize for that either, Jesus was not always nice. Read Matthew 23, which is during the Passover, and all of Israel is there in Jerusalem. Only the men were required by law, but the women and the children went too. Scripture demonstrates that. And Jesus publicly humiliates the religious leaders of Israel by calling out their hypocrisy and self-righteousness. He wasn't being nice. Now, folks, we are sinners living among other sinners, even in this church. We must prepare ourselves for abrasive times in our life as a congregation. It comes with the territory of being a sinner who loves and is loved by other sinners. It's going to happen. Now, men, we love our wives and our children, but sometimes we have to confront them or they have to confront us and it isn't pleasant. But we don't stop loving each other because of it, especially when we need it. We should be grateful to have people who love us enough to set aside their own comfort in order to confront us when we are in the wrong. We actually sin when we put our comfort ahead of a sinning brother or sister by saying nothing when we see them continuing in sin. Now let me say this uh, so I don't mislead anybody. We need to keep in mind that the situation between Paul and Peter is not the general pattern of dealing with a sinning brother or sister. The situation with Peter, an apostle, was unique because of who Peter was and the nature of his sin. All right, outside of what we read in 1 Timothy 5.20, we should take a Matthew 18 approach to dealing with a sinning brother or sister. All right, finally, <clears throat> when it comes to fighting for the gospel, we need to make sure that we are looking at ourselves, not just others. We need to ask ourselves, how are we compromising the gospel in our own life? Now look, folks, we need to realize that compromising the gospel is not just verbal or doctrinal. Peter was not preaching a faith plus works of law salvation on Sundays. He wasn't. He was denying the gospel through his actions, not his words. It is very easy, and I will say convenient, for us to make sure we have every doctrinal jot and tittle nailed down to its finest point regarding the gospel. But we won't give even half of the same effort 
when it comes to examining our life to see if we are thinking or living in a way that contradicts the gospel. We need to make sure we are fighting for the gospel everywhere it is being attacked. First in our own lives, then within the church, and then outside of the church. Let's pray. Father, forgive us for our complacency with the gospel. Help us to see that fighting for the true gospel is not just about doctrine, but it is about everything you have done, are doing, and desire. Help us to give the gospel the priority in our lives that it ought to have. We ask all of this in your precious Son's name, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen.